You are listening to That'll Preach. And today we're going to start a new segment called Podcast Recap, where I'm going to basically distill some of the interviews that I've done into a digestible form and a shorter form so that you can get the general idea of some of these interviews. And also maybe it'll pique your interest to listen to the whole thing. And we'll have a, we'll have a link to the full-length interviews in the show notes. But this is something I just wanted to try to make the podcast a little more accessible and provide some additional reflections after the fact, because I really do enjoy these interviews. I love asking these questions. I learn a lot, and I hope that you guys learn a lot as you listen to the conversations that I have with these pastors and theologians and scholars that I interact with. So the first recap we're going to do is going to be on an interview I did with Chris Castaldo on why Protestants convert to Roman Catholicism. Chris is a lead pastor at New Covenant Church in Naperville, and uh, he's also a fellow at the Center for Pastor Theologians. He has written extensively on Roman Catholicism, had a lot of ministry experience with Roman Catholic converts. He did his dissertation on John Henry Newman, so he knows a lot about this tradition, and it's actually a little bit biographical as well. He grew up and had a very positive experience with Roman Catholicism. At the age of 23, he converted to Protestantism, and he really marks that as his conversion experience. And since then, he's been trying to help Catholics who have converted out of Catholicism to Protestantism uh, understand the faith, and also to teach Protestants to avoid some of the mistakes that he made as an early apologist for Protestantism uh, toward Catholics. So he summarizes his story in, in a couple ways. One of the big things he talks about is the reasons that he became Protestant. And he lists three reasons, grace over guilt, relationship over rules, and the priesthood of the saints. Regarding grace over guilt, he really talks about assurance. That's something that really resonated with him. What is the assurance, the ground of you knowing that you are saved, that you belong to Christ? Relationship over rules. He tells a funny story about when he was a Catholic growing up, they had this big feast. I think they had like a steak dinner. And they realized that they were doing this on a fasting day. And so the bishop pronounced this special dispensation saying it was okay. And so he kind of viewed this as like, hmm, this doesn't really sit well with me. It seems like Catholicism is just a bunch of rules. There's no actual living relationship with Christ. And he also talks about the priesthood of saints, which is the dignity of everyday work, that you don't have to be a priest or a monk you know, or a saint to uh, have dignity and, and for your vocation and calling in life to matter to God. Now, these reasons are things that I think well-meaning Catholics could say, yeah, we believe all that stuff. Um, but he's, again, talking biographically. These were some of the points that, that caused him to consider Protestantism and compelled him about Protestantism. Not saying that Catholics can't affirm a form of these, but again, his experience is such that these were compelling reasons for him. We talked a little bit about conversionitis, which is a phrase that he uses in the book that he co-authored with Brad Littlejohn about called Why uh, Protestants Convert. It's a great little book. And conversionitis is basically the phenomenon of Protestants converting to Catholicism and the factors that he has noticed over his years of ministry. And he really lists down three major factors. First, psychological Second, theological, and third, sociological. Psychological, he breaks down into what he calls father hunger, a desire for authority, especially in a world in which marriages have disintegrated and people are lacking that stability. 
the holiness deficit disorder he notices, where there's just a lack of holiness in the church, a lack of reverence for God in the church. Everything's about smoke and guitars and, you know, warehouse churches that are very trendy, and there's no sense of reverence for God. You don't walk into a, a, a mega church evangelical, you know, gathering and think, oh, wow, this is where God would be, you know, whereas you walk into a cathedral, it feels more like this is a place of worship, of transcendence. Theological, we didn't go as much into this, but this is just basically a theological shift, an understanding of grace, nature and grace. We get a little bit into the way in which the Roman Catholic Church understands itself to be a continuation of the Incarnation, uh, the nature-grace continuum. He mentions that a little bit, but we don't go super in-depth into that. The third one, I think, is the, the most interesting one to me, the sociological reasons um, that serious-minded people want to be Catholic, that they have this strong intellectual tradition, this strong moral tradition in the public sphere about pro-life, gender, ethics, all these types of things. You think about all the the judges and the public intellectuals who are Roman Catholic. It's a very impressive array of people. And there's this kind of draw, this kind of draw into the inner ring where you want to be part of these people who you can be a Christian and still be academically respected or politically respected or publicly respected. And so there's this draw of prestige that Roman Catholicism offers to intellectually minded people. Now, his response is that Protestants have all these resources as well. And then he also recognizes with humility, I think, Protestant problems. You know, he notices that, yes, there is a lack of reverence oftentimes in Protestant churches. It's all about being casual. There's a lack of beauty, a lack of liturgy. People view tradition suspiciously. And people are compelled by Roman Catholic visions of tangible grace, what he calls grace that's, that's embodied, where it's not just your mind projecting these thoughts outward. It's not just drumming up an emotional feeling, but there's something concrete that you can actually taste and see that the Lord is good, that architecture and art and beauty and aesthetics that are traditional can raise up the soul toward higher things. And in comparison to sort of a megachurch, pop evangelical church, um, it's, very, it's very difficult to have a sense of that kind of reverence and transcendence. He also recognizes the model of pastor as CEO, which you see in a lot of megachurches. He's not a good model. Um, and he thinks that the Roman Catholic Church stresses the shepherding idea. And you kind of think about the old priest who is a priest over a parish in a neighborhood, and he visits all the people, and this is the guy that takes care of people one-on-one versus megachurch pastor, influencer, 50,000 followers, writing all these books, traveling around the world, designer jeans, all this stuff. One of them seems more biblical than the other. So he does recognize that Protestants have some downsides. Um, but then he flips it, and, he, and we talked about how Catholics have their own problems as well. Um, there's the problem of superstition. We talk about a story that he recounts in his book where there are these Filipino tourists in Jerusalem who are adoring the Eucharist and then a group of Protestant tourists who are definitely not doing that. And he says that that really shows the difference in how Protestants and Catholics understand how grace is mediated to people. In the Roman Catholic system, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, they're transfigured. They, they, the, the substance of them become the body and blood of Christ, but the accidents, the outward appearance, remains bread and wine. But 
in its actual essence, it's, it's no longer bread and wine. And this is a very thick conception of how grace is mediated through nature. And, you know, on a personal note, I remember one of my friends growing up, he said that if Catholics are right, then Protestants are being irreverent. If Protestants are right, then Catholics are being idolaters because they're worshiping something as God that is not God. But if that's God really in the flesh, in the Eucharist, then we ought to adore it. If it's not, then we're committing idolatry. So the stakes are, are pretty high. And this can lead to all kinds of superstition. Talking about superstition with relics, superstition with saints, all these types of things. And he's something that he wants to guard against. And he, and he finds that Eucharistic adoration is, is a big deal and uh, that Catholics have a problem with being very superstitious about these types of things. Whereas Protestants understand that the primacy of God's presence is, is primarily mediated through the word. He also talks about assurance, that Catholics don't have the kind of assurance that Protestants do. And he says if he were to approach one of those Filipino uh, Christians who was adoring the Eucharist, he would ask them, what is the ground of your assurance? How do you know that you're saved? What are you trusting in? And these are fundamental questions he would ask respectfully, um, but I think reveal a lot of the differences between Protestants and Catholics and reveal some of the downsides regarding actual assurance that you belong to God that salvation truly belongs to you. And finally, he talks about internal discord, that uh, there really isn't as much unity in the Catholic Church as they would like to say there is. He uses the example of on his Twitter feed, he's got Robbie George, very conservative political figure and intellectual, versus Father James Martin, a very liberal intellectual. Both of them affirm the magisterium. Both of them affirm Roman Catholicism. Both of them believe in the same institution, and yet they have diametrically opposed visions of life regarding some very, very key issues. And his point is that the teachings of the magisterium, they must be interpreted themselves, and they're not as clear-cut as people might think or as as it's advertised to Protestants. And especially on a local level, there can be varying opinions on some significant ideas that gets underplayed whenever uh, Catholics are often criticizing Protestants for being divided. We also talked about ways that we can approach people who are Protestant thinking about becoming Catholic. And one of the things he points out is that the Reformed tradition has a lot of these things that scratch the itch, so to speak. He talks about in his own church, they'll wear Geneva gowns to remember the Reformed heritage. They have stained glass windows. Not everything is the overreaction of the Puritans. Churches today have a more elevated view of liturgy. I mean, you can go to high church Anglican churches, and they have this wonderful sense of aesthetic. And even churches now, even non-denominational churches, will try to find an old church and, and, and meet there because they have this sense of history and a sense of beauty. So it's not lost on Protestants and maybe something that Protestants are recapturing. Also, when it comes to unity, Catholics and Protestants use different criteria for determining unity. For a Catholic, they think about institutional unity. Protestants think about unity with regard to preaching the same gospel. Protestants may disagree over mode of baptism, but they don't view churches that disagree with baptism as heretical or not a church because they don't view that as essential to the gospel. The gospel is something that all churches hold together, and that shows that they are unified in that message. And so, again, it's a different way of viewing unity. That's a whole other discussion. I'm not arguing necessarily for the Protestant or Catholic view, although obviously I'm a Protestant. Um, 
really just trying to reframe the conversation to say, you can't judge Protestants by a Catholic definition of unity without first asking whether the Catholic definition of unity is legitimate. And finally, Chris points out that a lot of conservative Roman Catholics aren't happy with the current Pope. They're not happy with the discourse around LGBTQ issues and whether women should be ordained. And there's a lot of inner turmoil. Now, institutionally, there seems to be more stability, but there's a lot of diversity within the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it's over a billion people who are Catholics. I mean, this is not like the New Testament times when it's just a small persecuted minority in these little house churches. And to think that there's going to be you know, total unity among that large of a group of people is is false. And I know they don't say that there's going to be total unity, but but I think even on an institutional level, there are some tensions being brought to the surface that I think at least show that Catholic unity is oversold. And finally, he talks about the pastoral concern he would have for somebody becoming Roman Catholic, because from his experience, there's not a lot of Bible exposition happening in Roman Catholic churches. Now, I haven't been to a Roman Catholic church. I didn't grow up in that. But it seems like that's an antidote that he feels very strongly about. And if that's true, that is a big deal. Uh, that is a big deal that the, 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 the Word of God is not preached. And I think even a lot of Catholics would say that the best preachers aren't in the Roman Catholic tradition, at least today. And so I think the preaching of the Word and the primacy of the Word is something that should really be considered when it comes to deciding whether you want to convert to Catholicism or not. Some reflections about this. Really learned a lot from this conversation. I think it highlighted a lot of the romanticism in these conversations. I think it's an unfair comparison to take an idealized vision of the Roman Catholic Church and compare it to your felt reality of Protestant churches. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you know all the problems in your own home. You know all the the, the weird idiosyncrasies of your own family. But the family out there across the street with the perfectly mowed lawn, you think they've got it all together. Sometimes people are more drawn in because they are against Protestantism, because they're so familiar with its flaws, because it's their home, than they are really for Catholicism. They just kind of find, well, if it's not these Protestant things, then it's got to be good. And I just think a lot of that idealism has got to be dismantled. And a lot of times when they talk about Protestants, they use the worst caricatures. I mean, I mean, the megachurch CEO pastor, I don't think any self-respecting Protestant faithful pastor thinks that that's a good idea, right? And we all roll our eyes at the same things. And I don't think it's helpful for that to be the battleground, to say that, to use the, the, the absolute worst examples of Protestants as if that is what is intrinsic to the Protestant tradition. And also understanding the Protestant tradition is very broad and diverse as well. But that doesn't mean that they can't have unity. That doesn't mean they can't have respect. It doesn't mean that they're excommunicating one another and saying that they're each separated brethren, right? So I think for the future of these conversations, this has helped me to understand, appreciate the Roman Catholic tradition, but also clarify some of the differences and help in dialogue. And again, I think Romanticism, that's a big, big factor. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to romanticize Protestantism either. We want to deal with the facts, deal with them as objectively as we can, and have respectful dialogue while also 
not being afraid to talk about some of the significant differences. So really love this interview with Chris. I hope you guys enjoy it. The link will be in the podcast notes. Let me know what you thought of it, and hopefully it's a helpful resource for you.